0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see.
0: And welcome to it, another edition of Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Light, Brett Hollander, and Jeff Arnold. And Jeff, on the program today, really one of the all-time best statistical Orioles, someone who has a ring to go along with it, someone who was in Baltimore for 10 years, an Orioles Hall of Famer, current Yankee broadcaster, and longtime Yankee broadcaster, the one and only Ken Singleton.
2: Another one of those people, kind of like Jim Palmer, that's had two incredible careers, member of the Orioles Hall of Fame. And he said it on the podcast, you know, you could make the case that he and Eddie Murray were the best switch hitting duo ever. And I love the story that he told about Jim Fergusi, who was managing the angels at the time talking about you guys are the toughest team to, to scheme against because you got you and then you got Eddie Murray and just pick your poison. But he told some great stories, uh, some great Earl stories as well. And I had a lot of fun with singing on this podcast.
0: Yeah. I always point this out whenever I'm talking to Ken Singleton, because You know, and Jeff, you are uh, as up to it as anybody about the uh, new stats and numbers. But at the start of the Moneyball era, it was about OBP and walks. And if you go back in time, and I've said this before many times, it turns out a lot of the best hitters walked a lot anyway. And Ken Singleton was one of those really good hitters with tremendous play discipline. And he had almost a 400-lifetime OBP in his prime years. He was well on that range, walked 100 times in a season many times, his value would be better today than it was then. And he was a great player then. And he would have
2: probably been the MVP then as well. If you take a look at some of the metrics, you know, the year where he was up for it against Don Baylor and said the two were on a plane flight and they never really talked about it, but seeing he had a higher OPS, he had a higher on base percentage. There were a number of years before that where he was walking a hundred times and he had more walks than he did strikeouts so, yeah, I think Ken Singleton's another one of those players. we've had a couple that we've talked to over the course of this podcast. If you took the numbers that they put up in those years, looked at where they are right now and what is valued as far as the analytics go, uh, he very well might have been a, a little bit more valued, but still had a
0: fantastic career with the, with the Orioles. And i also like to make the point that a lot of the stuff we're talking about today was not invented yesterday. It was invented many, many baseball moons ago – and that's really important to know. So that's just a personal little rant there. But guys, at like Ken Singleton, he knew getting on base was important. He knew it. That wasn't Billy Bean, although nothing to take away from Billy Bean. And a lot of the new GMs of the day, but it wasn't something. It turns Babe Ruth walked a lot. Did you know that?
2: Yeah, he walked a lot, and the difference was that Babe was struck out a lot too. Singleton didn't strike out anywhere near as much. And it, it goes to what you know Earl told him is like Ken Singleton wasn't a guy that was going to steal a whole lot of bases. But he walked a lot. He found a way to score. He had some 100 RBI seasons. And before Al Bunbury came along, they had him hitting out of the leadoff spot. And then very early on in the year, as, as Earl told the story, he would find a way to score. And immediately, Earl felt vindicated. And, and Orioles fans, certainly, uh, and Orioles, the whole the team, benefited from having Singleton hitting out of that leadoff spot.
0: All right, so let's get to it. Without further ado, Ken Singleton. And joining us today on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite is one of the all-time great Orioles and Oriole Hall of Famer, someone who spent 10 years in orange and black and currently a legendary broadcaster for the YES Network for the Yankees. Uh, Ken Singleton with us right now. Singy, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine, Brad. How are you doing? I mean, there's been a delay to the season, but it looks like we're going to get underway.
0: Let's hope so. And for you and I asked this to Dempsey the other day for people who have, I mean, you're talking about your life led by the baseball season every spring for, for yeah. someone like you, I'm not going to say your age, but <laughs> for, you know, 60 years you played baseball and watch baseball in the spring. Uh, what's it been like for you?
1: Yeah, it's a little different. Actually, I did stay in Florida a little bit longer. There was nothing else to do. And it was the weather was still kind of cold up here in Maryland, but uh, I've been back in Maryland for about a, about a month now. Uh, of course, everything had warmed up by uh, uh, by the time we came back, and of course now it feels like summer outside.
2: When you were playing in the major leagues, you you had some strike years that that you know where you did weren't able to play. Uh, how does this sort of experience, and it's really hard to relate anything like it because we haven't seen anything like this before. How does this maybe relate to? to some of those times when you weren't playing baseball?
1: Yeah, this is completely different, Jeff. But the fact is that uh, I was part of three strikes and two lockouts. So uh, uh, things back in the day were a little more contentious between the owners and the players. But right now it looks like the era of good feeling is, is over, so at least for now. And maybe, uh, you know, with the CBA coming up next year, uh, maybe even some more contention. But the, the fact is, to compare it, this is different than anything we've, we've ever seen before. Back in the day, it was more uh, arguments about uh, uh, pension plans and free agency and free agency uh, compensation. And that uh, made it difficult to get things done. But this basically, the argument this year was basically about money. And uh, to me, that was not a good look for baseball and the Players Association. Uh, Eventually, they came together, uh, which is a good thing. And uh, if we can get underway, But there's outside influences here this year, Jeff and and, um, Brett. The the fact is that uh, this virus, nobody knows what's really going to happen. And uh, hopefully um, they can get it together and get through this. I'd hate to see them start and then have to stop. Uh, There's just, um, you're seeing players opt out. And uh, if they want to, they can. Uh, All they're going to lose is, you know, salary and service time but uh, they feel their health and their, maybe the health of their families is more important. And I can understand that. I, I wouldn't blame anybody for opting out. But I think you will see players at different stages of their career do so. If you're a young player trying to make a team, it's kind of hard for, for you to say, well, I, I'm not going to do this. But if you're a veteran player who's you know, made pretty good salary over the years, I can see you stepping back you know, and just saying, that this, I don't feel comfortable doing this. And uh, that that would be uh, uh, the way I think this is going to break down along the uh, lines of service time in the major leagues. If I'm a young player, and I know back in the day when I was a young player, yeah, I I wanted to make the team if I could. Uh, You have to realize everybody has different situations. You know, guys have mortgages to pay. They got kids who are going to school and things like that. So some of these guys might want to play too. But if somebody opts out, just go ahead.
0: And I think we're going to see it in all the sports to some degree uh, yeah. where people have to make their own judgment of things and how their sport is handling things. Uh, interestingly enough, baseball hadn't begun yet in earnest when this really started. Basketball, the NBA, and hockey, they were essentially towards the end of their regular season. Those two sports haven't gotten back going yet. I feel yeah. there's an odd pressure on baseball that the other sports don't have when you would think that you know, baseball hasn't – didn't start and stop yet uh they're trying their their best obviously it's been contentious at times we all know that but yeah. it's not like it's it's not like it's act, trying to activate by themselves I mean other sports are having the same issues
1: yeah but you're right about the timing because uh basketball and hockey have just about completed their season they were going into the playoffs the players had made most of their salaries uh the owners had made most of the money through attendance and tv well baseball wasn't in that uh, situation at all You know, players basically hadn't been paid yet. They don't get paid in spring training. They get a stipend, but they don't get paid their salaries. Uh, They did get uh, some money from the owners that lasted, I think, until the end of May. And then, of course, the owners are looking forward to the playoffs here, where that's where the big money comes in for TV. So uh, without fans in the stands this year, uh, the TV money's a big deal. Uh, I would say this, that... um, all the radio and TV outlets for all the major league teams, they're going to see record numbers as far as the ratings are concerned. Uh, you know, even my boss at Yes, uh, John Filippelli mentioned that, uh, um, you know, Yes does very well, but he said the ratings this year are going to be off the charts.
2: As Brett kind of mentioned in the NBA, uh, Doc Rivers is, is, a, is your cousin. Um, yeah. Have you had an opportunity to talk to him? about the NBA's possible restart process and and going into the bubble?
1: No, I haven't talked to him, but I've seen his quotes. Um, You know, usually uh, I text him quite a bit after they've won games. (laughs) 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 And they do have a good team. I mean, they have a team that has a chance to win it all this year. So I I imagine if they get started again, and it appears they will, um, uh, I I saw where he said uh, that he was kind of worried about things and just – just the logistics and everything that has to be done, the protocols that have to be followed. And, you know, basically the same throughout all sports, uh, just to get this thing rolling. And, uh, I mean, players are going to have to be on their P's and Q's and just, you know, watch everything that they do. Uh, The difference between basketball and hockey and Major League Baseball is that in baseball they're going to be traveling. And that's going to make things, I think, even more difficult. Uh, They're going to be on airplanes and buses and, you know, traveling to different hotels. And I, I think that's going to make it diff- more difficult because basketball and hockey, they're going to be in a bubble. And, uh, you know, you to get in there or get out of there, uh, it, it depends on, uh, you know, just what you do as a person.
0: Let's talk about your time uh, with the Orioles singing while we have you here as well. Remember. And- <laughs> <laughs> you come over for the 1975 season. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts – coming to play for Earl Weaver's Orioles uh, in the middle of the 70s?
1: Well, it, it, I was leaving the Montreal Expos, and uh, the Expos were more or less an expansion team at that time. I think the year before, 73 was our, my best year up there. And uh, we were in the race until towards the end, but we still finished under 500. Uh, it's interesting because um, uh, Mike Torres came with me in that trade and uh, from Montreal to Baltimore. And the night before, we were out in Montreal. This this is in December. And we were talking about the fact that the Orioles had just traded for Lee May. And we said, man, the Orioles are a really good team. They're they're really something. Well, about 6 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. And it's Mike on the phone. And I said, Mike, what do you call me? 6 o'clock in the morning. We didn't get in until 2. He says, says, Singy, um, I got traded. And I said, oh, Mike, man, I'm really going to miss you. He was my best friend on the team. And I said, well, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Baltimore. And I said, whoa, we were just talking about them last night. Oh, I'm really happy for you. He said, you don't understand. You're going with me. And I said, what? Nobody's called me. And he said, your phone's going to ring in about 10 minutes. And it did. Uh, the GM, uh, uh, Jim Fanning, called me and said, I've been traded to Baltimore. I already knew about it. And then, you know, I, I was kind of smiling from ear to ear because I knew Baltimore was a good team. And when I got to spring training that year, the first player I ran into was Brooks Robinson. And he put his arm around me, welcomed me to the team, and he said, Singy, when you're here in Baltimore, you don't have to do it by yourself. We got a lot of good players here. And when I walked in the clubhouse and I looked around and I saw people like Paul Blair and Don Baylor, Jim Palmer, Mike Cuellar, uh, Andy Etchamarin, I I saw all these players, and I'm thinking, man, he's right. There there are a lot of good players in this clubhouse. I thought to myself that this is a place I'd like to stay for quite a while if I can. And, uh, of course, I finished my career with the Orioles after 10 seasons there.
2: Great players and a great manager in Earl Weaver. When you, you transitioned <laughs> to the Orioles and you, you got to know Earl and see how he operated on a, on a daily basis, what, was, what were some of your first uh, impressions of Earl?
1: Uh, trying not to mess up because he would let you know right away if you screwed up on the field. There was none of this, Jeff, about talking about it tomorrow or, you know, sweeping it under the rug. (laughs) He was waiting for you when you came off the field, and he would embarrass you in front of everybody. Uh, I can recall a time in Chicago where I dropped the fly ball, and this was a couple years after I'd been with the team, and, you know, as an everyday player, I dropped the fly ball, uh, the White Sox didn't even score. So I felt good coming back into the dugout after the inning was over. And sure enough, here comes Earl walking down towards where I'm sitting on the bench. He starts yelling at me, what are you doing out there? That's not the way he said it. But he said, what what are you doing out there? I said, Earl, I got no excuses. I dropped the ball. Uh, they didn't even score. He said, that's not the point. You're supposed to catch the ball. And I said, I know, Earl. I said, you better leave me alone. I, I, I got to hit this inning. And he said, oh, yeah, you're right. Go ahead. See, he he knew it. He knew it was important. Me going going up to the plate. So um, uh, yeah, and He. You mentioned Rick Dempsey before. He got on Dempsey just about every day because you know he was a focal point of the game, being the catcher. Whenever the other team got a hit, it was always Dempsey's fault. So uh, and Dempsey would come in and say he didn't throw the ball where I wanted thrown. You know that that sort of thing. So that went on all the time between uh, Earl and Rick. Uh, Earl Earl was definitely. The best manager I ever played for I mean you look at his winning percentage um, I think the best since World War II 583 I mean that, that's amazing he had five 100 win teams I was fortunate enough to play on two of them uh, when you went out there to play for Earl Weaver uh, you had the feeling that he was ahead a couple innings ahead of what was going on in the game and uh, that he, he wouldn't be outmanaged. managed um, he you know, sometimes he got tossed out of games and we kind of on our own. But even those days gave us a day off from him. So uh it was uh it was fun. I, I you know, all my teammates you mentioned, Rick. I I, I love them all. Uh, we still I still in contact with a lot of them. Uh, bumbery is probably my best golfing buddy along along with Ross Grimsley. So we uh, do a lot of things together now. You know, we've seen all our kids grow up. We all have grandkids now. Um, so it's. It's different now, but the bond is just as strong as it was uh, years ago.
0: I always think it's important to point out Earl beyond the belligerence because uh-huh. I don't think you get a full picture if you're just talking about you know what, what's on YouTube and fights with umpires and players and, and things <laughs> like that. But I always point this out to you. You know, At times, he, led you, uh, he had you lead off because of your ability to get on base and walk 100 times, uh-huh. a- and that's ahead of his time by decades, is it
1: not? yeah uh, you know not many people were going to put somebody in the leadoff spot who was only going to steal three bases at you <laughs> so uh i remember i came to spring trading you mentioned 75 and he called me in the office about two days later and said you're going to lead off this year i said earl um i've never let off before uh, at least not in pro ball you know and he, he said uh, well you get on base and that's what i want and he, i said well i'll do it remember i'd already had 100 rbi season in montreal so uh, he says, you're going to lead off my first time up. We're playing in Detroit. This is a regular season. Um, it's cold as all get out. We got snowed out the day before. And uh, Palmer pitched that day. And I led off the game, led off the season. I drew a walk. Went to third on a base hit by Tommy Davis and scored on a three run homer by Lee May. So we're up three nothing just like that. I walk into the dugout, scored the first run of the season. Earl points his finger in my chest and says, that's what the hell I'm talking about. Get on base. And, um, you yeah, ended up walking 118 times that year. It's still the team record. And, uh, you know, I, my whole thing was to get on base as close to 300 times a season as I could. And I think that year I got on base 295 times. Led. So um, uh, between the hits and the walks and you know, occasionally being hit by a pitch. So uh, it, was, it was different. I got used to it. Uh, but when Al Bumber became uh, Al Bumber, he started to come into his own. Then I dropped back into the order and started hitting third most of the time.
2: When you got to the Orioles, mm-hmm. when you got to around your age 30 season, you know, that's when you started to come into your own. What uh-huh. was it that kind of made you click and, and get to a point where you were one of the best in the American League?
1: Well, we had a good team, uh, and certainly you want to hold up your end. And anytime you're batting in the middle of the order, you feel like uh, uh, you, the pressure's on, you got to get the job done. Um, yeah, I, I had a good year that year when I was, you know, I turned 30 years old. Uh, I think part of it was that Eddie Murray came on the scene in that year, too. So that gave us yet another hitter in the lineup. Um, I, I, you know, I would venture to say, I don't know if you guys would agree with me, but I think Eddie and I were the best switch-hitting duo in baseball history. And um, uh, to give you an example, the 1979 and 1980 seasons, between us we drove in 430 runs, 215 for him and 215 for me. And uh, I, I just felt that uh, – I remember Jim Fregosi was manning the, managing the Angels at the time said, you guys are the most difficult team to manage against because whatever move I make out there in the bullpen, one of you guys just jump over to the other side of the plate and, uh, you know, it, it's pick your poison, with either one of us. So uh, I, I just felt that um, Eddie showing up really solidified the line. It made my job a lot easier, too. Uh, and I remember um, Eddie batted fifth or sixth his first year, but his next year Earl moved him up to fourth, And he called me in the, Earl called me in the office and said, look, I'm going to move the kid up to fourth. You just do what you normally do. If you don't hit a home run, get on base so he can hit one. So that basically that was my job.
0: (laughs) Yeah. To have uh, that sort of duo from both sides of the plate with power in in that era, uh, what were your early impressions of Eddie uh, in the box and in the clubhouse when, when he first came up from the farm?
1: Yeah. Well, Eddie was kind of quiet and that, that was because, um, when he first came to the team and was he was going to make the team, remember Hank Peters when Eddie came up in spring of '77 wanted to send Eddie back to the minor leagues. He said he needed more seasoning. Well, Earl told Hank Peters, the GM, he said, "Look, if Eddie's not on the team, I'm not going to manage the team." So um, that means Eddie was on the team. Uh, I remember the first time I ever saw Eddie hit, and it was in spring training. And uh, he's batting left-handed, and he's hitting balls over the left, the right field wall. And I'm out in the left field with Lee May and Pat Kelly. And we said, "Who's who's this hitting?" And, um, and somebody said Murray. And I said, "Is that his first name or his last name?" And <laughs> so, uh, so then the next round of BP, he gets up and he hits right hand. He's hitting balls over our head, over the fence. So everybody's starting to say, "Wow, this kid's got some power." What what position does he play? Does he play? Nobody knew. He said, well, let's see where he goes after he he, uh, takes batting practice. So he went over the first base to take some ground balls. And Pat Kelly turned to Lee, man, and says, Lee, you're in trouble, man. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually, Eddie took his job as a first baseman. Lee became the designated hitter. But uh, Eddie also was on his way to having a Hall of Fame career.
2: Jim Palmer had a Hall of Fame career, and you often hear about how he made Orioles pitchers that he was on the staff with better. How did he make outfielders, infielders, other members on the team better?
1: Uh, It was just a pleasure to play behind him. Uh, He was a guy who was going to finish most of uh, what he started. I think uh, my first year with the Orioles, he had 25 complete games that year, uh, including opening day when he threw a three-hit shutout. You don't have 25 complete games in the league nowadays uh, during the course of a whole season. It was just a different time for pitchers. Um, and I think he led by example to all the other pitchers, the young guys like Flanagan and McGregor, who eventually came came to the team, uh, Dennis Martinez. They kind of fell in line and he was a team leader. Um, playing behind them could be uh, fun at times, and sometimes it wasn't uh, because, you know, he turned to the outfielders and moved you. He'd wave you over. Well, one day, I, I think I was in Kansas City. He's wanted me to move over, and I just waved back at him, you know. <laughs> and when he turned his back, then, he, then I moved over. And, uh, but he was that kind of perfectionist. And, uh, of course, there's another Oriole Hall of Famer and the best pitcher the Orioles ever had.
0: When, when you look at the 79 Club and the rise of Orioles magic, uh, take us through some of those, those moments and memories for you personally in your, in your decade-and-a-half career, where those stand out.
1: Yeah, that that was a, a great year. And in fact, although we did win the World Series in 83, I, I, I still think the 79 team was a little bit better. Uh, I think the pitching was a little bit better in uh, 79. Um, that particular year, uh, I got off to a, a pretty good start. And of course, I had my best year home runs and uh, runs batted in. And I finished second to Don Baylor in the MVP. Um, it's, it, interestingly enough, Uh, Baylor and I went on a trip to Japan with the all-stars in the fall of 79. And uh, we rode back on the plane from Japan right next to each other. And we knew the next day, one of us was going to be the MVP. And uh, we never mentioned it on the flight all the way back from Japan to Los Angeles. And of course, uh, uh, Baylor had been a teammate of mine when I first came to the Orioles. Uh, He got traded the next year to Oakland in the Reggie Jackson deal. But, um, uh I I just felt if you go by the modern way of analytics and the uh, uh the way they measure ball players, I, I think I would have had a better chance of beating him that year, uh, because my on-base percentage was higher, my OPS was higher. Uh he led the league and runs batted in, which was uh and he hit one more home run tonight. We I think we both hit the same, two ninety-five, two ninety-six. But uh, I think if if you dwell into it a little bit further like they do now, I think I would have had a better chance to win. Although losing to him didn't, because he was such a good friend and uh, a great teammate that uh, it didn't bother me as much as losing to somebody from, uh, you know, say the Kansas City or, or certainly Boston, you know, but losing, losing the groove, um, it, was, it was okay. It was okay.
2: Based on what happened in 79, um, did you guys carry that around as fuel for a while? I mean, you know, we've heard, had some other people on the podcast that talked about what happened then and also yeah. about kind of how 82 finished with Earl's last game. How much did those two events kind of carry over and give you guys a little extra momentum going into that 83 season?
1: Yeah, you're, you're right. Because of uh, in those days, it was a three-way race between the Yankees, us, and the Red Sox every year. So there was no game; you had to win the division to to get to the playoffs. There was no wild cards back then. Um, And give you an even further example of that: in 1980, we won 100 games and still went home because the Yankees won 103. Um, Just uh, the the fact that uh, in in those days, and that team, although we lost the World Series, which really hurt. I mean, we were up three games to one. and when we got back in 83, um, I, I think we were really, we were, we, I think in 83 we had more injuries than we had in 82. And the fact that we lost the division on the last day of the season in 82, that pushed us the next year. But we were getting a little older as a team in 83. And uh, when we got ahead of the Phillies three games in one, I think we all realized we're not going to have a repeat of 79. We're, we're going to get this over. And. The, to give you an even further example, after Scott McGregor warmed up, uh, of course he pitched game five, he walked into the dugout, looked at everybody and said, the world series is over. And he went out there and shut out the Philadelphia Phillies. And, um, uh, <laughs> you know, years later I said to him, you know, how, how could you do that? I mean, I mean, we had some great pitchers and none of them would have said that. And he said, I just felt it that day. I just felt really confident coming into the game. And, uh, I, I always felt that, that Scotty was you know, a big game pitcher. Uh, he's the one that beat the Angels after we uh, blew a chance to go to World Series in 79. And um, uh, to further give you another example of that, uh, we lost a tough game to keep the Angels in the playoffs. And Scotty was pitching the next day. And it was re- as you can imagine, we just blew a chance to go to World Series. And Scotty gets in the middle of the clubhouse and says, I guarantee you, we will win tomorrow and he shut out the angels the next day we won seven to nothing was seven or eight to nothing but anyway two times he guaranteed it and both times he pitched a shutout and um i don't know i know if i was him i would have done that but uh, i guess he had confidence in us too so um uh, i i just uh i think back to those days and uh, the good times that they were uh hopefully uh you know, in not-too-distant future, it, the people of Baltimore, the fans of Baltimore, can live that sort of thing again. Um, I remember coming back from Philadelphia, uh, riding a bus because, you know, Philly's not that far, and we pull up into the parking lot in Memorial Stadium, and it was just jam-packed, people hanging off a lamppost. Uh, it was such a good feeling, and uh, I, I'm fortunate enough that was the only world championship team I played on, but uh, it was, you know, 15 years in big leagues and one. I'll take that one. That, that, that was fantastic.
0: And, seeing he, uh while we're talking about 83, let's talk about your first impressions of Cal Ripken Jr. When yeah. he came up in 82 and uh, when he made his big league debut in 82 and obviously MVP of 83. And, mm-hmm. and
1: what you thought could be. Well, I'd, actually, I'd seen Cal a little bit before that. You'd mentioned the, the strike situations. We had the, the strike in 81. And Cal Sr. brought Cal down to the Memorial Stadium to work out with us while we were getting ready for the second half of the year. And they told me he was a pitcher at the time. And But he took some batting practice. He's hitting balls in the seats. And I said, why are we making this kid a pitcher? He's got awesome power. He's got good size. And I saw him work out in the infield. And I said, you know, he, he looks like he could be ready. Well, the next year, of course, he was Rookie of the Year. Then the year after that, he was the MVP. The thing about Cal... Um, there's two things that really stand out, you know, young players and even veterans make mistakes, but when he made one, he didn't make it again. Um, uh, He was well-schooled. And I think physically to me, he was the strongest player i ever played with just physical strength. And I think of course, we all know that uh, he said broke the record for consecutive games, but to me that is not only a physical record. It's a mental record. Uh, To have that, desire to go out there every there's every player would tell you there's days that you just don't feel like doing it or you're praying for a rain out uh, but to, to do it for that length of time every day uh, that shows you the desire and the determination he had just to go out and help his team win and to me that um, that, that means a lot in my book
2: it's the last question for me about that 83 season uh, how weird was it You're in Philadelphia. Earl turns things over to Joe Altabelli, and Earl is broadcasting the World Series um, that year.
1: Yeah, I I think that after 82, and uh, we had the incentive after losing by the last day of the season, but we also had the incentive, Jeff, that we wanted to show Earl we could win without him. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, knowing that he was on the scene and uh, watching this uh, play out, uh I, I just made it even better. I, I uh I I can remember that um uh I was so elated after winning that World Series and running up the tunnel at the vet, the old vet in Philadelphia. And they had bottles of champagne on either side of the uh runway. And they told us the good drinking stuff's on the left side and the stuff of corn's on the right side. <laughs> yeah, I guess the cheap champagne was on the right side. So uh, yeah, we, we we went through uh, you know, bottles and bottles of it that night. Uh, I just it was completely raucous in the clubhouse, as you might expect. You've, you've seen celebrations after winning the World Series, and ours was no exception. Uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I, you know, just talking to you guys now about it is bringing back some very good memories. Thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate. It.
0: I have to ask you: you've had this marvelous broadcasting career, which, if I'm not mistaken, actually started while you were playing, and you had the, you know, futuristic. Uh, point of view where you 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 saw life outside baseball and we've all heard the stories about professional athletes trying to find out what's next because you're you're a young person when your career is over in professional sports how did you get in to broadcasting i know you were locally um you know very involved and aggressive in pursuing your next uh, line of work
1: yeah well uh, you know the people at uh, channel 11 uh uh, in the office when we didn't make the playoffs they would have me come in and sit in on the sports and kind of make my prediction as to who I thought was going to win. Now, of course, I would always preface that by saying to the fans, the people who are watching, I said, don't bet the house on this, but this is who I think is going to win. Um, When we had the strike in 81, uh, they asked me to come in and, you know, cover a little, they needed something about baseball. So I went out and talked to people with softball teams and uh, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I had a good producer. So you guys know what good producers are like, right? Yeah, we, you need them. So, uh, and we come in with Little League, you know, interviewing Little League players or watching, you know, just footage of Little League games. And uh, that was kind of the start of it. But the real start came um, uh, in 83, believe it or not. Uh, of course, we went to World Series that year and won it. But Tony Kubek came up to me that year. The Blue Jays were kind of coming into their own as a, as a team and were a playoff contender. And he asked me if I wanted to, if the Blue Jays made the playoffs, would I go up there and uh, work as an analyst on the Canadian broadcast? And I said, sure, I'd do it. But, of course, it didn't happen because we won. Um, 84 was my last year playing, and Tony came to me again. And he said, look, um, we'd like you to come up and work on TSN. It's a new uh, sports network in Canada. It's like ESPN. And he said, uh, there are games that I can't do that we'd like you to do. And, you know, I was looking for something to do. I said, sure. So I was supposed to do 20 games, 20 Toronto Blue Jay games. Before spring training ended, the Montreal Expos signed on with the network. So they came to me again. They said, instead of 20 games, we'd like you to do 80 games. You'll do 20 Blue Jay games and 60 Expos games. I was known in Montreal, so that was uh, because I played there for three years. I ended up uh, doing Expos broadcasts for 12 years on radio and TV. Um, I worked with uh, who, uh, Dave Van Horn, who eventually it became a Hall of Famer, and he now does games on radio for the Marlins. Um, I learned a lot from Dave. Uh, after the 12th year, um, I moved on. I noticed every time I went to New York, there was these two guys that would sit in our booth and just listen. I didn't know who they were, but I found out later they were with the MSG network who, who produced the Yankee games. So they called me up to New York for an interview for an audition. And um, uh, Jim Cott and I were supposed to do voiceover three innings of the World Series the previous year. And after one inning, they said, look, you got the job. And there's you, you and Jim Cott. You know, we had good chemistry right away. And uh, I, I enjoyed working with him for 10 years. And then they said, uh, here's the kicker. They said, now you got to go meet George Steinbrenner." So we flew down to Tampa to meet George, walk into this big office. It it was Legends Field then, now it's Steinbrenner Field. And George says, our fans aren't going to like you. And I said, with all due respect, how come, Mr. Steinbrenner? He said, because all the bad things you used to do to us. (laughs) And I said, I was just doing my job. And he said, we did it too well, you and that Eddie Murray guy. And... um, but one thing George knew, he knew I was from New York and he knew I grew up watching the Yankees. Uh, in fact, every time the Orioles went to New York, uh, when I was with the Orioles, he would give my parents the tickets right next to the dugout. You know, you know that's away from the family section. Those, those are pretty good seats. And he would just give four tickets to a mom and dad, my aunt and uncle. Now, I've, I've since found out over the years that I was George's favorite visiting player. He knew I was from New York. He had met my uncle somewhere along the line. And um, I also found out from uh, uh, one of his sons and one of his assistants that twice they tried to trade for me, but the Orioles said no both times. And, uh, you know, I I was happy where I was. Uh, I had a chance to become a free agent, and I stayed with Baltimore because the guys were great. The team was great. The city was fantastic. You know, and just to prove it, I still live here, you know, so... Uh, I I just think that uh, knowing that Steinberg would like me as a player uh, and was trying to get me, and this was before my parents actually retired and moved down to Baltimore to be near their grandkids. So it would have been sort of like a homecoming, but um, no, it wasn't meant to be. You know, and I'm happy the way things turned out.
2: Can you take us back to your first Major League Baseball broadcast and what that initial experience was like?
1: Yeah, um, it was 1985. It was a cold day in Chicago. The Expos were playing the Cubs. And my first ever interview was Harry Carey. And uh, uh, I got a picture of that interview right on my wall over my shoulder here. Um, Harry was great. Now, it was supposed to be like a two or three minute interview. But Harry kept going and going and going. And producer said in my ear, we'll chop it up later. Just let him go. So uh, it, it must've turned out to be about 10 minutes. Harry was talking about uh, how great the game of baseball was, um, how he had been with the Cardinals for 24 years. He thought he'd get a gold watch, but they gave him a pink slip instead. Um, he was talked about players that had come and gone, but he said baseball is still here. Uh, Wrigley field is going to be packed because people love this game. And uh, the, Certainly, it was my first interview, but it was one of the best ever. Uh, Harry was, uh, of course, an iconic broadcaster. Um, he was always nice to me when I came to Chicago, because he knew my grandmother lived in Chicago. <laughs> and I had a lot of relatives there. And uh, he'd always say nice stuff about the nice things about me on the air uh, that, uh, you know, my, my relatives would hear. My grandmother probably wasn't listening to the game, but she heard about it in church from the pastor every every time we came through town. And I, I just, uh, you miss guys like Harry, and Jack Buck, and now Ben Scully's retired. Uh, but all of them during the course of my career came up to me and uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, son, we hear you're doing a great job up there in the booth. Just keep going. And uh, you never know how long this can last. And, uh, you yeah, I've been up there 36 years now. I, I can see the end coming. In fact, this year was supposed to be my last year. Uh, but uh, the way things have turned out, I, I'm. Uh, I don't think this is going. I think I'll come back one more, at least one more. I know my boss doesn't want me to quit. Uh, and a couple of times I told him I was going to stop, and he just said, "No, I mean, we we can't let you go. <laughs> you know, you got to come back. We'll give you fewer games." And uh, you know, it's kind of worked out that way.
0: Always just to love visiting relatives in New York, and at the time switching to MSG because you know just to have that much sports on television in those days was was a rarity that kind of options of how many games you could watch it was for a young kid always you know kind of hit you in the face but uh to, to be able to listen uh to call games on television in those days was always the thrills of baltimore and going up and and seeing someone i know lived in baltimore was a great oriole and um having you could argue as much success in his post-baseball life as a broadcaster as he did on the field
1: yeah i've been uh, up in the booth more than twice as long <laughs> so uh Uh, And, you know, as as a player, you realize that, uh, you know, it's it's only going to last so long. I mean, father time catches up with every player. Uh, But, Brett, if I could turn it back and be 20, 30 years years old and play at today's prices, I would do it. Although, um, you know, broadcasting has been – I I tell people it's the second best job in baseball. Uh, If you can do your homework and uh, be able to uh, make sense up in the booth, uh, and have the following that you have, uh, particularly on the Yes Network. I, I, you know, a lot, a lot of reasons. It wasn't only my boss that didn't want me to stop. It was the fans in New York didn't want me to stop either. And uh, that that was part of the reason why I decided to come back. Now, I feel like this year, I'm not going to give them everything that I could because it's going to be a condensed year. So um, if if the bosses want me back, I'll, I'll come back for one more year and, you know, right into the sunset after next year. And, you uh, you know, go watch my grandkids play ball. <laughs>
2: <laughs> A lot of former players are analysts, but you also do play-by-play. Uh, when you initially were asked to to call some play-by-play, and and it was before you got to the Yankees, um, yeah. you did some with the expos. Uh, how did that conversation go, and, and what was it like when you when you started doing some play-by-play and uh, and realizing
1: what that was like? Well, with well, Jeff. Uh, it's actually started on the radio. Now, when I first started doing Blue Jays and uh, Expos games, I was an analyst. That was it. But after a couple of years of doing that with the Expos, uh, they came to me and said, uh, look, we really like your work. By that time, the Blue Jays were out of the picture. I was just strictly doing non-Montreal games. And they said, we really like your work. Uh, we'd like you to do uh, the radio games as well. And I was thinking, well, we do about 80 games on TV. I'm going to have to do the whole season. And, um, uh, it was just like playing without the sweat. You know, you, you, I, I would, uh, I worked with Dave Van Horn who was on his way to becoming a hall of famer. And, uh, I can recall, well, I was nervous, you know, the first, but it it worked out. And I, I would say my upbringing in New York, Red mentioned it, that, um, uh, the fact is that I got to hear some very good broadcasters going up. I mean, Hall of Fame guys like Mel Allen and Red Barber and Din Scully and Russ Hodges. There were th- When I was very young, there were three teams in New York. Um, eventually, it got down to one and then back to two uh, when the Mets came into being. And then you had Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. Uh, so I got to hear all of these people. And the pacing of a game, it, 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 it's all about – keeping people interested. It's all about doing your homework. Um, the toughest games to do are the ones when it's 14 to one, whether you're winning or losing. Those are the ones that you got to keep people interested. And that's when you have to dip into your stories. And uh, uh, I, I think that's one thing that I, I hear from a lot of New York fans. They love, believe it or not, New York fans love to hear about Earl Weaver. They, they love to hear, because they know he was such a character. And they, they'd they seen him firsthand at Yankee Stadium get thrown out of games. You know, and, probably on TV uh, when the Yankees were here in Baltimore. So, uh, it, 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 and there's a million oral stories. Of course, you can't use them all, but, uh, you know, they're just things that come up during the course of the game. And if it's not forced, to me, baseball broadcasting, baseball is fun to begin with, and it should be conversational. You're just letting the people at home in the booth with you and seeing what you see. They can see it on camera but you might be able to add a little bit to it uh, whether it's a statistic or something about a player or something about the town you're in um, uh, something geographically, they don't know about that city. Uh, and if you add all these things to the game, it comp- uh, I like to create what I call the complete picture of what's happening that night in that city, whether it's the weather or whatever. Uh, and then uh, that, that makes the fan at home, Sitting after a long day of work, he's got to speed up, maybe he's got beer in one hand, he's trying to enjoy a game and relax for a few hours. You're trying to make it as relaxable as possible for the people who are watching. And that, that's what I try and do every single game.
0: Well, hopefully we are weeks away from giving the people that uh, in 2020 and, and maybe even see that long-awaited Garrett Cole-John Means matchup I was looking so <laughs> much forward to it at the uh, end of March.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that it should be a good one. Now I understand the, from what I understand, the Yankees are going to open in Washington, and it's going to be uh, Garrett Cole against Max Scherzer. That should be a pretty good that's one. That's a I good think. one.
0: That's a good one. How would yep. you do against those two, Singy? Yeah, in your prime.
1: Well, you know, back in the day, I faced Nolan Ryan. If those guys throw anything like him, you're just trying to keep them striking out three times. You know, so um, the 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 thing about it uh, uh, with Garrett Cole now, the Yankees are already working out. And to be honest with you, if they can get through the workouts here, I mean, LeMayu's already tested positive. I mean, it, 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 that's not good. Uh, and other teams are dealing with the same thing. But Garrett Cole was already throwing 99 miles an hour. You know, they they got the radar gun on him throwing BP the other day. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to be fired up. You know, he, he said he wanted to be a Yankee his whole career, and finally it's happened. And, uh, of course, he's got 324 million reasons to be there. So I, I just think that he's, he's primed to have a good year. And uh, that might be the missing piece of the puzzle. The Yankees are going to miss Severino for sure, Uh Tommy John. But uh, the, the fact is that they've replaced him and got a number one piece to their starting rotation, which is pretty good. And they can hit. There's no doubt they can hit. So uh, I'm looking forward to them having a good year, certainly being a playoff contender and um, we'll see if they, if they win I might just call it say that's it I'm, I'm out of here but uh, uh, but even so it, it, it would feel a little different if you win this year it, it wouldn't be the grind that a, a baseball season usually is
0: that's definitely true but uh, we look forward hopefully to baseball nonetheless Ken Singleton we appreciate it so much thank you as always for your time and uh, we'll catch up down the road I hope
1: Brett Jeff thank you you, get, you guys are well prepared I'll say that <laughs>
0: That's Ken Singleton. Great stuff as always. We really appreciate Ken for doing that. And uh, we do look forward to that John Means Garrett Cole matchup, hopefully at some point and perhaps for many, many years to come. Uh, speaking of John Means, I-, I think it's fair to say, Jeff, you saw it a lot in spring training more than I did, that he was the most polished and ready guy, which was great to see when you have a rookie year like that. You want to see the piggyback immediately, that it wasn't an illusion the year before. And I, you know, really watching John closely last year, you could see. Uh, the polish, the minor league experience. I mean, you go six months in the AL East, and a guy who was even talked about in spring training of 2019 as a guy who can make the club and then certainly on a guy who could join the rotation and make impactful starts. But you've known John for a long time. Uh, your thoughts on what was the difference with him as he grew up in the minor leagues with the Orioles to what you saw last year in the big leagues?
2: Well, first of all, you made a good point about what you, you saw during spring training. I saw him in a game that he pitched against the Phillies, where they had pretty much their everyday lineup in there. Andrew McCutcheon was was injured and was recovering from injuries, so he wasn't in there. But it was, it was basically the Phillies regulars, and Means went nine up and nine down. But to, to kind of go back to it, John Means, the, the pitcher that he was in the minor leagues when I saw him, is a lot different than what he has become. The minors, he never had a true out pitch, but. He worked with Chris Holt to get that change up to a point where it was pretty, pretty diabolical pitch, and and he got a lot of swings and misses off of it last year, and now he's been working on his curveball, trying to add that to his repertoire and get the curve of the slider maybe to be a little bit sharper, so it gives him a couple more weapons in which he can get hitters out, but it's the work ethic that John Means had and how he never gave up. Uh, there was a funny story out there about how he created a linkedin profile for himself when he was in the minor leagues because you know he wasn't sure kind of how it was going to go but he kept sticking with it um, i think it helped that his wife caroline who is a former professional soccer player so she understands you know those moments where you're questioning yourself and that's having a having a spouse that also is a, a pro athlete that's that's a great resource to have and you know they they made it to the big leagues you know through you know working hard at it, and eventually uh, Means got to the spot where he did last year, where he, he kind of got that change up to the spot where he wanted it to be and makes the all-star team. And now the Orioles are hopeful he can contribute in a big way uh, in this truncated, which has become the, uh, the word that we've started to use quite a bit, this truncated
0: 2020 season. And, Jeff, I think when you look at the future for John Means, the stuff plays – you know, he's not some soft-tossing left-hander. In spring training, he was gassing it up, you know, 92, 93, 94. He's got that pitch, that, you, that pitch, the changeup, has gotten hitters out since the uh, dawn of baseball. That's not going away. If he can add one more or some semblance of another pitch or two, uh, he's going to be a guy who – I mean, I just think this stuff plays. I mean, am I crazy? No, I don't think so. And And that was maybe what he didn't have in
2: the minors – until he developed that one at least one pitch that he knew could get hitters out um that was really key and then he went to this performance center in St. Louis where David Hess actually went to over the course of the offseason and kind of did some work which which kind of transformed him a little bit so you add those couple of things to the mix and he's a guy that he's he's very diligent working on you know with pitch design is what they call it now just kind of trying to figure out how to make and a couple of your pitches look the same until they reach the plate, and then suddenly they disappear and the hitter is is helpless. Um, he continues to work on that stuff really diligently. Uh, he got an opportunity to face off against his brother Jake, who is uh, a member of the Royals minor league system. Uh, John has a house in Kansas. His family is nearby. And so while he was trying to stay in shape for the season, uh, he said he faced his brother probably about 300 times or so, they played at this little 2A high school field with a fence that was 250 feet away in left field. And, and John said, you know, Jake got the best of me sometimes, maybe a few more times than I really would have liked. But uh, you have to factor in 250 feet away, probably a few wall scrapers and probably a
0: few routine fly balls in there too. So it's going to be fun to watch John take the next step this year, obviously within the American League East and NL East, which is the competition for the Orioles in 2020 in a truncated, truncated 2020 season you had to, to check it off check it off <laughs> give me a tall task but uh, looking forward to seeing john mature and develop over the next several big league seasons all right that does it for us uh, for this edition of Orioles magic the podcast presented by Miller light for jeff arnold i'm brett hollander have a good one everyone stay safe thanks for being with us
3: hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best